Recently, we did a Q&A, question and answer time, during our Sunday evening service. That is one of my favorite things to do. We hadn't done it in a while, and for me personally, it's a delightful time to connect with you in some fashion and hopefully be a little bit of a use to you in your walk with the Lord. I was told we didn't get to all the questions you submitted, so we'll try to address that as we're able. But if I could add a question that I wish someone would ask, Here's the question I wish someone would ask. As a pastor, what is your gravest concern for the church of Jesus Christ? There are a lot of answers to that, and I would hesitate to even try to put them in order of importance. But I can give you one that's always near the top of my list. Always near the list of greatest concerns for the church of Jesus Christ, and that is people who have been in church for many years... And yet the fruit of their lives ultimately exposes them as false believers. That's one of my gravest concerns. Jesus wasn't just telling a bedtime story in the parable of the soils when he outlines the different soils which receive the implanted seed of the gospel. And by his evaluation of the four types of soil, three of them turn out to be false. Three turn out to be false salvation. And so I'm burdened that every person who attends Grace Bible Church, our our little corner of the Church of Jesus Christ, that every person be regenerate. I can't control that. All I can do is proclaim Christ and warn and admonish and teach. That's what we do. Every once in a while, a false believer becomes convicted and horrified at how self-deceived he was and comes to genuine faith. But that's a rarity, at least in my experience. And I would begin this morning by reminding all of us that as a Christian, you can't rely solely on the memory of a profession of faith a long time ago. You can't assume that just because you were baptized or you've been devoted to the life of the church or or even that you really like Bible preaching, you can't assume regenerate faith because of those things. We're to be sobered by the words of Jesus in John 15 when he said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So this is a major concern for me as a shepherd and something that I believe is part of our duty to address. And to answer that concern, we've just begun a mini-series beginning in Matthew 5.13 that I've called Authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. And, And for me as a shepherd, for my part, I want to do all that's in my power to give you every opportunity to test your faith, to be certain, to have the joy of assurance of salvation based on the bearing of spiritual fruit, not some memory of something you did or said when you were eight years old, but spiritual fruit that's authentic and that's real. And so we'll spend the rest of chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel on this topic of authentic Christianity. Now last time we said that the authentic Christian will light the world, and this time the authentic Christian will elevate the Bible. The authentic Christian will elevate the Bible. Today we're examining Matthew 5, 17 through 20. My focus will primarily be verses 19 and 20, but we need to establish an an important foundation for understanding really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And verses 17 and 18 give us this foundation. So we're going to lay that foundation. Then we'll get more specific as to the elevation of the Bible in the life of the genuine believer in Christ. Matthew 5, 17, the words of our Lord Jesus. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the latest foundation, we need to walk through some technical issues. I'll be as as brief as possible. First of all, we need to note that in verse 17... When Jesus refers to the law or the prophets, he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. 
Genesis through Malachi in our, in our Bibles. The Old Testament canon, the scriptures that we call the Old Testament, and maybe some scholars more accurately call it the First Testament. The second note we should make is that when Jesus references the law in verse 18, he doesn't say the law or the prophets, just the law. This isn't something different. This isn't a change in topic. This isn't that now that Jesus is, is only speaking of the law of Moses as contained in the Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament. What he's doing here is simply continuing what he began in verse 17. So he continues speaking of the entirety of the Old Testament. And in at least a dozen places in the New Testament, the, the phrase the law is used to speak of all of the Old Testament or the First Testament. The third note we should make, when Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, the Old Testament, this is very likely in response to accusations he was receiving already that Jesus was somehow seeking to destroy the law, to say that the Old Testament was wrong or bad, to denigrate it, to put it down, to eradicate the Hebrew Scriptures. The term abolish here, this is a strong term and it speaks of literal destruction, of, of demolition, to tear something down violently. And Jesus says that's not what he came to do. Instead, fourth note we should make is that Jesus came to fulfill, to accomplish, to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, let me slow down just a little bit. What does that mean? That he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, this word has a broad range of meanings. In fact, in Matthew's gospel alone, it's used four different ways. It's used to speak of the actual accomplishment of an Old Testament prophecy. It's used to speak of a similarity or a parallelism connecting an event back in Israel's history to an event in the life of Christ to connect Christ to Israel. We've seen that in the earlier chapters of Matthew. It may be used to speak of making something happen, completing something, or it may be used to fill something up, to make it full. In this particular case, Jesus uses this in an active way. This is an active verb that says that he's making this happen. He's fulfilling, in context, what? The entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. So in this case, this particular word means to complete to make something happen, to bring it to fruition. So what is he speaking of here? It's really not that complex. And it centers very Christologically on our Savior, only on Him. What he's saying is, is that Jesus and Jesus alone will make all the Old Testament prophecies happen. All the Messianic prophecies about Himself, all the end times prophecies of judgment and the kingdom, all the covenant promises. He'll complete the Abrahamic covenant. He'll complete the Davidic covenant. And of course, most importantly, the new covenant. All the prophecies concerning national Israel, concerning the judgment of the nations, everything will be completed for one reason, Jesus. He brings it all about. The Old Testament ends with massive unfinished business and Jesus is going to finish all of it. But now in Matthew, there's a shift. There's a switch. Jesus is asserting in no uncertain terms that the Old Testament isn't to be abolished, but is to be completed in him, finished out in him. But the Mosaic Covenant, the law given to Israel through Moses, is going to expire. It'll expire at the cross. It'll expire as the means by which the genuine believer in God obeys. It'll expire as the way... The genuine believer in God shows love to the Lord, not because it's being destroyed, but because a new covenant is being inaugurated. And Jesus is now instituting what we could call new covenant law. Verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. What does Jesus mean by these commandments? At first glance, it's easy to assume that he's clearly referring back to the law or the prophets, the Old Testament that has some merit to it, but that's probably not the major reason, the, re the major meaning here. He just said he came to fulfill the Old Testament, and he clearly is going to institute the New Covenant. He says as much on the night that he would be betrayed, that this is now the inauguration of the New Covenant. But in verse 19, the word translated commandment, this is a switch from the word he used for law 
in verses 17 and 18. And in fact, this is the same word that he uses elsewhere to refer to new commandments that aren't even found in the Old Testament. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Same word, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, the things that are spoken by Jesus personally. So the very strongest and very most compelling evidence is that Jesus is now referring to new covenant law, to the Sermon on the Mount from particularly verse 21 all the way to the end. And the evidence of this is is robust, it's strong. First of all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives 46 open commandments and 14 implied commands. Second, the end of the Sermon on the Mount isolates the commands of Jesus alone. Matthew 7, 24, these words of mine. 7, 26, whoever hears these words of mine. He's very clear about this. It's the third strong piece of evidence in this section beginning in Chapter 5, 21 and following, all the way to the end of chapter 5, Jesus quotes Moses six times. And then he says, but I say to you, he's not correcting Moses, and he's certainly not explaining Moses, he's bettering Moses. He's the better Moses, he's giving new covenant instruction that now supersedes the law of Moses. He's not contradicting the law of Moses because the character of God never changes, but he's given a new law, one based in a new covenant. Now, that covers the Sermon on the Mount as being the beginning of new covenant law. Moses gave and received the law of God where on Mount Sinai, Jesus is receiving and giving the law of Christ from the mount by the Sea of Galilee. Very similar But it's important that we note that Hebrews 3, verse 3 says of Christ that he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. What does that mean? Moses was the messenger of God to give the law of God. Jesus is God giving the law of Christ, his own law. He betters Moses. But Jesus would continue this this work through the apostles. He promised them in John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What do we have in the New Testament? We have the words of Christ taught to the apostles, written down after his ascension. The perfect remembrance of the books of the New Testament, New Covenant Law. So what are we to make of New Covenant Law? Or to put it this way, what do we make of the Bible that we hold in our hands? What do we make of it? Well, first, with this Bible we hold in our hands, the least in the kingdom hold lightly to Scripture. The least in the kingdom hold lightly to Scripture. Verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is teaching here is that this isn't a salvation issue. This is rather a reward issue. That the one who annuls, it's a word that means to relax or to loosen or to not take seriously. The one who annuls the law of Christ. And perhaps worse, who encourages others to do the same. He's the least. He's the lowest. He'll receive the least reward. The eternal life to be sure, but lesser reward. Lesser responsibility in the kingdom. To help illustrate this, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter 2, I'd like to show you the response to the Word of God that Christ is looking for. What is the response that he means? Because the authentic believer obeys the Word of God. This is lived out most compellingly in a concept that is core, it's central, it's essential, it's vital to our faith. It is the middle of our faith in terms of living it out. And that's the concept of submission. Submission is at the center of our faith. At the beginning of this section, in 1 Peter 2, Peter highlights what the genuine believer's attitude toward the Scriptures, the law of Christ, what it's to be. 1 Peter, 1, or 1 Peter 2, rather, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, 
like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may, be, you may grow in respect to salvation. We're to long for the word. It's, this is a word that means to deeply desire, to yearn for something. Not something you're just putting up with. It's something you, you yearn for. And you notice that there's a, a contrast. This is in contrast to showing malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and, and slander. The antidote to those things is to long for the word of God and to grow in respect to salvation, to grow into being an accurate reflection of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And in the following sections of 1 Peter, a theme is developed based on the yearning for the word of God, that if you yearn for the word of God, then you'll obey the word of God. And if you obey the word of God, this particular theme follows you in your life, and that's the theme of submission. Submission in various categories, we might call it. Submission which demonstrates that you are in fact longing for the pure milk of the word and purposefully growing. I want to show you these categories of submission and I want to show you a a comforting truth, a principle that they all have in common. The first category of submission we could call distant relationship with no love or affiliation. Distant relationship with no love or affiliation. We find this category represented in verse 13 of chapter 2. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For such is the will of God, that by doing good you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. This category, distant relationship with no love or affiliation, you don't have a love relationship with the government unless you work for the government and you like to, you like to keep your job. Maybe that's as close as you can get. But we have people in our church who work for the government and they would say, no, we don't love the government. We submit to it, but no, we don't love it. The government's imperfect is generally corrupt in every way you can think about. And yet it was ordained by God, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, to to keep society at some level of organization and lack of chaos. And we detailed a couple of weeks ago that if the government steps hard outside of its God-given purview, you have choices to make to quietly disobey as needed, but we obey all that we can. We, We do our very best to do that. We work to not be a cause of trouble or difficulty, to maintain a quiet life of effectiveness for the gospel. So what are you to do? Peter says, be subject. This is a word that means to place yourself under. It's a a placing under of someone else's authority. There's a second category of submission. A closer relationship with potential love or affiliation. A closer relationship with potential love or affiliation. And we see a representative here in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure? But if you, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. Now, you may have noticed that one of the features of the Legacy Standard Bible, since we've switched over to that, is the precision of accurately translating the Greek word doulos as slave rather than servant. But the beginning of verse 18 says servants, and it's not doulos or douloi as a plural. A doulos is a slave that could be considered the lowest of the low, the, the lowest of all society. This is a different word. This is a plural word for house slaves. It's related to the Greek word for house. This is specifically a servant in the home. It it might be a lowly servant or it might be all the way up to the chief of all the servants. Somebody we might call a manager or a butler. And in fact, this house slave could easily become a cherished part of the family. This was not uncommon whatsoever. And so this has... The potential for love, the potential for affiliation. 
But Peter says very clearly here, even if that's not the case, even if you have a, a crooked, difficult master, the word crooked means harsh, unjust, unfair, that doesn't change anything. What do you do? Be subject. Same word as chapter 2, verse 13. Place yourself under. The equality of the leader makes no difference. There's a third category we could call the closest relationships. The closest relationships. Our first example is in 1 Peter 3. You're familiar with this. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, as they observe your pure conduct with fear. Same word as the previous two examples. Be subject. Place yourself under. There's some key details here. This is a wife who may even be married to an unbeliever, or at the very best, depending on how you take the text, at the very best is married to a disobedient, harsh believer. Whichever way you take it, it doesn't really matter. The goal is to win him. How? Without a word. She submits to him. She is noticeable in her pure conduct, and it says pure conduct with fear, meaning respectful, deferential treatment of your husband. And you notice that this subjection, it it springs from an internal heart attitude. It's not a show. It's not putting on something external. It's it's internal, and it bears the fruit of godliness. In verse 4, where does it come from? Verse 4, the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a low and quiet spirit, lowly and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What does this mean? The incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit. It means that nobody can convince her to do otherwise. She can't be corrupted. She will have a lowly and quiet spirit no matter how her husband acts, no matter how other people say, well, you need to stand up to him. You need to do this and that. No, she's incorruptible. She will obey God because it's right. And there's another in the category of the closest relationships. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5. In the category of the closest relationships, 1 Peter 5, after four verses of exhortation to the elders in the church and how they're to be committed to the body of Christ, to the sheep. Verse 5, he gives an admonition to the ones least likely to be submissive in this case, apparently. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Same word as the previous three examples. Place yourself under, being subject to. Now, why does this go in the closest relationships category? It's not necessarily because you know your elders at a deep, intimate level. That might be the case in some cases, but it's because their role and duty as elders is solely for your benefit. Elders don't serve for their own benefit. It's only for you to shepherd you, to provide you with ways to serve the Lord, to gain heavenly reward, to encourage, and and yes, to even rebuke sin at whatever level is necessary. Why do elders do this? There is one thing that elders are looking for in return for your subjection to them. One thing. The Apostle John said uh, that, that I have no greater, what, joy than to see my children walking in the truth. The one thing that we look for is joy. Hebrews 13, 17 goes along with this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with what? Joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable to you. That's the reward for elders. Joy in saints who obey and submit Now, by the way, just a little side note here. The writer of Hebrews leaves no doubt as to his meaning. He's almost repetitive. He says, obey your leaders. This is a present middle imperative. That means be convinced in your own heart. Be convinced in your own soul that you ought to obey. It's not just outward appearances. It's the inward attitude of of loving to submit. And just in case that wasn't enough, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is a word that means yield, withdraw, back down, retire, give way. It's the opposite of being argumentative. Rather, instead, be sheep that follow shepherds with love and who give joy. 
I've said this before, I'll say it again, I've never once met a rebellious church member who's happy and joyful. They don't exist. So longing for the pure milk of the word, all the way back in 1 Peter 2, it bears the fruit of submission. In distant relationships with no love or affiliation, it bears the fruit of submission in closer relationships with potential love or affiliation, and it bears the fruit of submission in the closest relationships. Now let me show you the comfort found in living out our longing for the pure milk of the word in submission. Because submission is scary. It's frightful. Because we're submitting to imperfect people. Go back to 1 Peter 2. Here's our comfort, and it's really everywhere in these texts. 1 Peter 2.13 1 Peter 2.13 You are to be subject for the sake of the Lord. It's out of love for the Savior. Verse 15, for such is the will of God. That's the reason. It's the will of God that we do it. We, don't, we need no other reason. There's no other rationale. Just a little important note here in this particular section about the government. You're not a slave of the government. You're really not anybody's slave. You've been freed in Christ, but you submit willingly. Verse 16 says we act as free people. The Legacy Standard Bible supplies the implied verb act. You'll see it in italics in your verse 16 there. The main verb is back in verse 13. So we could say, be subject as free people. That you're not slaves of other people in reality, but in verse 16, you are slaves of God. And so you submit out of love and deference to the Lord. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. That you're to bear up under sorrow even when you suffer unrighteously. Why? For the sake of conscience toward God. Verse 20, this finds favor with God. Do you see where the the focus is? It's upward. Look at chapter 3 again. Concerning the wives. Chapter 3, verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being subject to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children if you do good, not fearing any intimidation. Godly women hope in God, not hope in a perfected husband. Godly women don't fear because they're looking to please God and this brings comfort to them. They're able to please the Lord and there's there's great comfort and great joy in this. And, And when we considered elders, I referenced Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with growing, groaning, for this would not be profitable to you, for this would be unprofitable to you, rather. You won't give an account as to whether your elders were good, bad, or mediocre. You will not give an account for that. The elders will give an account for you And you will give an account for the obey your leaders and submit to them part. But Lord, that's not what I told you to worry about, is it? But Lord, do you know this guy? That's not what I told you to worry about, is it? And just in case you're slightly uncertain about yielding, you're slightly uncertain about waving the white flag and just simply humbly submitting, Peter provides an example The ultimate example, look at chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviling in return, while suffering he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." You notice what Jesus did with injustice? He didn't revile in return. That's abusive speech. He didn't issue threats. He simply entrusted himself to the Lord who judges righteously. Now this is amazing because if anybody had the right to cry foul or to say, I can't submit to these inept people, it would have been him who did no sin. He entrusted himself to the Lord who judges righteously. Can I give you a phrase we're more familiar with? He played the long game. He played the long game. God might not get you now, but he will get you later. 
so you can play the long game as well. You submit because you love the Lord. And Peter sums up his case for submission. He gives a summary of it. Chapter 3, verse 8. How do we know he's summing up? Because he says, now to sum up. All of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Did the Lord Jesus Christ give a blessing when he was reviled? He prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. When the Son of God prays for you to be forgiven, you'll be forgiven. But the least in the kingdom hold lightly to the Scriptures. They stand in judgment over Scripture in the name of choosing to not be subject for some sort of self-rationalizing reason. Why is that? Because they've chosen to trust in self rather than the Lord. And it may not be a salvation issue but it certainly is a reward issue. Turn with me back to Matthew 5, verse 19. What do we make of the Bible we hold in our hands? First, with this Bible we hold in our hands, the least in the kingdom hold lightly to the Scripture. The least in the kingdom hold lightly to the Scripture, but second, with this Bible we hold in our hands, the greatest in the kingdom grab a hold of Scripture. The greatest in the kingdom, grab a hold of Scripture. Verse 19 again. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom, grab a hold of Scripture. I'd like to go to a very familiar text to us to help us understand this. Turn to the Old Testament to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we'll begin in verse 38. Psalm 119 speaks specifically of old covenant law. We understand that, but the principle of loving the scriptures, which now include new covenant law, that, that definitely applies, and Psalm 119 speaks to us in that regard. Psalm 119 is entirely, all 176 verses, individually as well as collectively, it's entirely about the scriptures themselves. What I want to have you notice this morning is that there are several key verses in which the psalmist makes a connection between grabbing tightly the scripture and worship. That it's the the scriptures that make him an effective worshiper, make him an effective believer as a worshiper. 119, verse 38, cause your word to be established for your slave as that which produces fear for you. You notice what he says. It's the word of God which causes fear of God. And listen, this is very important. The fear of God is the first necessary component or it's the first prerequisite to worship God. You cannot worship God without fear of God. That's impossible. The old notion that, well, in the Old Testament they fear God, we just have a reverence for him. That is, that is a Christian myth. And we have a fear of God. If you saw Jesus as he is today, you wouldn't say, hey, Jesus, you'd fall down on your face because you fear God. It is the word that produces worship. It is the word established, he says. It means to stand up in my life, to bear fruit in my life, to be big. It's making itself known in my life. It's producing true worship because it produces humility and deference. Not only does the word produce worship, it produces fellowship as well. It produces fellowship. Look at verse 63. The word produces worship, it produces fellowship. Verse 63, I am a companion of all those who fear you. There it is again. And those who keep your precepts. Notice that the psalmist is closest to, he is the most intimate with, he is the companion of others who fear God. And notice what this great fellowship is based on, those who keep your precepts. You can't fellowship meaningfully with a a professing believer with a rebellious spirit. You really can't. 
Your genuine fellowship is based on the commonality of seeking sanctification, seeking humility, seeking obedience, seeking Christ-likeness. A church filled with those is a mighty fellowship. And on the other side, a church filled with people who don't hold tightly to the word is a cancerous church. It is filled with spiritual cancer. So not only does the word produce worship, produces fellowship, it also produces encouragement. It produces encouragement. Verse 74. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. Those who fear God, genuine worshipers, the psalmist is making the request. He's asking that they be glad when they see him. Why? In other words, his life is an encouragement to them. He's an example to them. And he asks to be that central focus where when somebody sees him, they say, this is someone from whom I can gain spiritual support and gain wisdom and comfort and encouragement. So not only does the word produce worship, fellowship and encouragement, it also produces repentance. Again, connected to the concept of fearing God. It produces repentance. Verse 79. May those who fear you turn to me and those who know your testimonies. May those who fear you turn to me and those who know your testimonies. Now, this may, may be speaking simply of a wish that he would be in the company of the faithful, that he wants to be around those that are faithful, and we understand that. But the previous verse indicates that something else may be happening here. Verse 78 is very negative. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they wrong me with lying, but I muse on your precepts. This is a wish that liars who have slandered the psalmist be put to shame, be, be convicted. And we could make a decent case that in verse 79, he's actually asking that the true believers, those who fear God, that they would turn to me. This is a Hebrew word with a broad range of meaning that includes to return to someone or to repent. The theme running through all those verses that I just highlighted is a connection between the genuine fear of God, the first prerequisite for worship, and holding tightly to his word. Acts chapter 17 highlights a a group of Jews in the city of Berea. They were an intelligent group of Jews. They listened to Paul and Silas preach the gospel. They were there in the local synagogue, and Paul and Silas are preaching every day. They're, they're, They're teaching and preaching from the Old Testament scriptures, And verse 11 of Acts 17 says that the the Bereans were, quote, more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica where Paul had just come from. Now, some take that as that somehow they were more honorable or more principled, and that may be the case since many of the Jews in Thessalonica also caused a ton of problems for Paul and Silas. But it likely means that they were just a higher strata of society. They were better educated. The very next verse speaks of others of high standing. In other words, they were, they were smart, they were well-educated. And as they listened, this is what the Berean Jews are still to this day famous for. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, I want you to notice something. The Berean Jews did not rely on their education. They didn't rely on reasoning. They didn't rely on logic although our faith is extremely logical and extremely reasonable, they relied on the sole single source of spiritual authority, the Word of God. And these are unsaved Jews, but the one thing they did believe is that Scripture and Scripture alone was the voice of God. I think in our culture today, the act of searching the Scriptures seems to be a lost practice in the church. We run to Google quickly, We run to books quickly. We run to our pastors quickly. And that's fine. But searching the scriptures means having a question or a concept you'd like to know better. And reading large quantities of Bible to find the answer, to dig it out and to to search and to look. Just like the Bereans did. For example, when you need wisdom, how about reading all of Proverbs and all of the book of James 
multiple times until you find answers that apply to your specific need. When you need a greater understanding of the nature of Christ and you think, I want to know my Savior better, read Colossians 1, read Philippians 2, read Revelation 1. How about 5, 10, 50 times? And when you want to know how to relate to other believers, why is it that I, I seem to make people around me mad? Or why is, it that, why is it that I have trouble relating to this or that? Read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 about 5, 10, 20, 50 times to search the Scriptures. That's what we do. That's grabbing a hold of Scripture and that makes you great in the kingdom. Speaking of which, turn back with me to Matthew 5. Whether we make of the Bible we hold in our hands, first, the least in the kingdom hold lightly to Scripture. Second, the greatest in the kingdom grab a hold of Scripture. But third, with this Bible we hold in our hands, the excluded from the kingdom warm their hands with the Scripture. The excluded from the kingdom warm their hands with Scripture. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't promoting a self-righteousness in order to gain God's favor. We know that. He's warning of false righteousness, of an exposure, listen carefully, even a deep exposure to the word of God which the false believer rejects and resists. This is very important. And he gives this order, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the experts in the word of God. And he says their righteousness is, is inadequate because new covenant law can only be kept by those to whom righteousness has been imputed, given. Not by keeping commandments in order to gain God's favor. That's hopeless. So he warns them, you must be different. You must be regenerate. Let's go to one more text. Turn with me to Hebrews 6. The writer of Hebrews issues numerous warnings against falling short of true authentic faith. And in Hebrews chapter 6, he does something that's dramatic, it's stunning, it's, it's a little bit shocking, to be honest with you. He calls out the false believer who's warming his hands with the Scripture, but not grabbing the hold, and not even lightly, not even in that category of the, the more obedient and the less obedient believer. This is the, the person who claims to be in Christ, and yet he just warms his hand with, with the Bible. Beginning in verse 4, the author of Hebrews presents five resources that the false believer has at his disposal. The one who's been in church, the one who's been around the Word of God. Five resources or five benefits. Hebrews 6, verse 4, For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Five resources that they've had available to them, and here's the irony, it's these resources that led and lead unbelievers to fool themselves, to deceive themselves, because none of these five are ever used to describe genuine believers anywhere else in the New Testament. But they sound good, What's the first resource? They were enlightened. They were enlightened. Verse 4, For in the case of those once having been enlightened, verse 6, And having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. This can't be speaking of losing salvation. Jesus made it clear in John 10 that he won't lose one who is truly his. Once having been enlightened. What does that mean? It means they've been exposed to, to spiritual truth. They've received knowledge. They've seen the light of Christ. They've seen the light of the gospel. And you would say, well, if they've seen Christ in the, they've seen the gospel, they've seen the light, then surely they must be saved. Well, how about this? Let's take it one step further. How about you just get right in front of Jesus and see him? Wouldn't that guarantee that you'd be saved? In Luke chapter four, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he taught about himself from the Old Testament 
And he essentially said, I am here now. How did they respond? The people listening to him tried to murder him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They'd been enlightened, but seeing God's light actually infuriated them. Seeing God's light and receiving God's light are two very different things. It's the second resource that the false believer has. They were exposed. They were exposed. Verse 4 says, They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Again, this is a, a phrase never used of a Christian in the New Testament. The text doesn't specify what the heavenly gift is, but the most likely candidate is simply Christ and salvation being exposed to great and glorious truths, such as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. They've just tasted, they've just sampled the gift that was just tested, not lived, not fully gulped, not fully taken in and received. Whoa, what's the difference? Jesus made a shocking statement to the skeptical to illustrate what it means to gulp salvation, to gulp Christ as it were. He said in John 6, beginning in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. What is he talking about? He means you can't just taste of Christ. You have to consume him and be consumed by him. These false believers spoken of in Hebrews 6 toyed with salvation. They might have even thought, what a, what a neat concept that God would freely offer salvation from sin. What, what a neat gift. How, how gracious, how kind. They've watched others be saved. They've benefited from and they've even seen the, the fruits of, of the lives of other believers and they've just sort of joined the parade. They're marching along, but they're not really part of the band. They were enlightened. They were exposed. There's a third resource that they had. They were witnesses. They were witnesses. Still in verse 4, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a word never used of the true Christian. Because the word partakers means to be associated with. Someone else has made the campfire. You're just sneaking into the camp to feel a little bit of warmth on your hands. You've seen the changed lives of those who did possess the Holy Spirit of God as born-again believers. But the Bible, listen carefully, never says that Christians are associated with the Holy Spirit. No, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We're changed by the Holy Spirit. We're new creations in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Not just associated with the Holy Spirit. Now, Christians aren't perfect, but we're the greatest people in the world to be around. Why? Because we're being made more and more like Christ, and Christ is the greatest person to be around. And even the unbeliever, enjoying the the fellowship and the feeling of being around believers who are truly worshiping Christ, the unbeliever can fool himself merely as a witness of the power of the Holy Spirit into thinking that perhaps he's a recipient of that power as well. The false believer has a fourth resource. They were enlightened, exposed, they were witnesses. They were taught. They were taught. Verse 5 having tasted the good word of God, having tasted the good word of God, you know, very often in the New Testament, the term for word emphasizes the whole counsel of God, everything that God says. This term for word here is different. It speaks of the little bitty parts, individual words, individual phrases, individual pieces of information, statements. These are people who have heard the word of God as as bits and pieces of interesting and maybe even inspiring information, but they've never put together the whole picture. The scripture tells a plan of redemption and you must respond to it. 
Jesus said to the Jews who were seeking to kill him. He said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. What's he saying? He's saying you think that being around the Bible as much as possible, or as we've said, warming your hands with the Bible, even learning the Bible, even memorizing the Bible, even knowing it backwards and forwards, you think that in that you have life. How many Bible scholars will spend eternity away from God because they missed what Jesus said? You don't get saved by the word of God. You get saved by the God of the word. This is the person that concerns me. This is the person who spent months or years in church. They've listened to maybe thousands of sermons. They've enjoyed some. They've been critical of others. But they keep coming back and keep gaining knowledge And the more they know, the more they fool themselves into believing that they're in Christ because they're part of the crowd that's learning the Word of God. I've had unbelievers who say, I don't claim to be a Christian, but I love listening to your sermons. I never know how to take that exactly. I just preached on hell. Did you love that one? I never know how quite to take that, but when I've had the chance, I have had the opportunity to tell a couple, then you're, you're in more danger than anybody. Because you're just tasting the word and you think it tastes good, but you haven't eaten. They were enlightened, exposed, witnesses, taught. There's a fifth resource that the false believer is around. They're astounded. They're astounded. They've seen, verse 5, the powers of the age to come. This is a reference to the future kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom's miraculous power that will be normal. It'll be routine in the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. They saw the miracles performed by the apostles spoken of earlier in Hebrews 2. Signs and wonders, various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. They're like the ones who saw Jesus raise people from the dead, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf, heal the terminally ill, and yet they still rejected Him. These are people who have been enlightened, exposed, Witnesses, taught, astounded. They've seen the light of Christ. They've seen the benefit of salvation. They've seen the power of the Holy Spirit. They've seen the truth of the Word of God. They're even astounded by the miraculous signs that the apostles performed. They've had tremendous resources. Let me ask you a question. What else can God give them? Nothing. Nothing. They're in the very, very best possible place the best possible position to repent, what they needed was to stop fooling themselves. But for some, it's too late. Verse 6, And having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame, that the unbeliever is in danger of losing the possibility to be saved. If he rejects Christ and the gospel at the most vital point of knowledge and conviction while he's steeped in the truth. And there's no hope for him. This is the person who's been vaccinated by the gospel and got just enough to be immune to actual salvation. And the longer he resists, the more resistant he will be. The most dangerous thing an unbeliever can say is, let me think about this longer. No. The writer of Hebrews says three times, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. And what does it mean that they were crucifying again the Son of God? I think the phrase put them to open contempt helps interpret this. The book of Hebrews addresses the issue of Jews being tempted to turn back to Judaism because of persecution. To put them to open open contempt means that they decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. If you've decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, by default you've decided that he did in fact deserve to die. And with all the evidence before them that we've listed in verses 4 and 5, they judged Jesus to be a fraud. They held him in contempt, in guilt. And now... The one that Jesus tells us will say to him, but Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment, 
as the ones who gave him the chance, given the chance, they would have said something else. They would have said, crucify him. That's why they can't come to repentance again because their true heart has been judged. You know who this person is just like? Judas. Judas was enlightened. He tasted the heavenly gift. He saw the power of the Holy Spirit. He heard the word of God. How about this? From the mouth of God incarnate. He saw the miraculous powers of the age to come and he still betrayed Jesus to the cross. And so the book of Hebrews warns us that you would do well to heed, Hebrews 10, 29, how much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My call to you from this series of messages in all of our authentic Christianity series is very simple. Don't play Christian. Don't play Christian. Don't be so filled with pride that you fool yourself into thinking that you'll be all right with God. And listen, for the one playing Christian, if you don't repent in fear, if you don't repent in submission to the Lord, there will be a moment in time, an actual moment, It may be in the far future, but there will be a moment in time when you're brought forcibly before the great white throne and the wicked deeds of your false life are read by Judge Jesus Christ for all to hear. There will be a moment of time when Revelation 20 verse 15 applies to you personally that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown in the lake of fire. There will be an actual moment of time when you are physically in a resurrected body that is there only to receive judgment will be physically lifted up thrown toward the lake of fire, toward hell. It will come at you like you're falling off a building, screaming in horror and astounded that you faked being a Christian. You were too proud to repent, too self-righteous to be broken. You were arrogant, you were haughty. And as you are approaching hell itself, perhaps those things that Paul said cannot enter the kingdom of heaven will be the last thought you have before judgment commences that you cannot be a liar. You cannot be a reviler. You cannot be a slanderer and enter into the kingdom. And you thought you would get away with it. And as hell comes raging towards you, what mind can possibly fathom the absolute hopelessness, the despair, the horror, the doom of never for all time being given a second chance? No chance to repent. No chance to say I'm sorry. No chance to go back and redo The first minute in hell will be agony. It'll stretch into an hour, which will stretch into a day, which will stretch into a year. There'll be no relief. It'll stretch into a decade, into a century, into millennia, into age after age after age, time without end, all because you warmed your hands with the Scripture. I don't know how much clearer we can be. But when Jesus said, my least favorite verse as a pastor when he said that the tares will grow up with the wheat. I believe him. And I hope you will too. Instead, let the fruit of salvation be so clear, so abundant. Let your heart be so low and the Bible so high that the new covenant law for you is not just an interesting Bible study. It is the heartbeat of your life. And it drives you to submit to the Lord. I've done my part. The Spirit of God does His part. You have one part. And that is to do what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. You know what I want to see? I want to stand in heaven with a lineup of people from Grace Bible Church all going, told you so, told you so, told you so, told you so. Great. Praise the Lord. I don't know how this works exactly. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I wonder what it'll be like to look around and go, huh, so-and-so's not here. 
Don't be that person. Let your life be low. Let the word of God be high. And then assurance is yours and we have great joy with that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Sanctify our hearts this day, our Father, to receive your word. Even now, perhaps the heart of a false believer or two has been laid open. The scalpel of the word has cut deeply into the true motives of the heart and perhaps at this moment they are seeing with fear and with terror that I am not in the faith. That I have not repented of being a liar. I have not repented of being a slanderer. I have not repented of arrogance and pride and avoiding dealing with sin. Instead, I've covered myself. I've attempted to make something of myself that I'm not. I've attempted to look good. I've attempted to protect myself and my pride. In these moments, Lord, for those whose hearts are laid open, we pray that their spiritual eyes would be opened, that the glory of Jesus Christ would shine brightly, that the Holy Spirit would regenerate, and the horror and terror of being a false believer would give way to the joy and the delight of finally repenting for real. And I know this is asking a lot, but Lord, I would love for our church to witness baptisms of people who have been false believers and now come to faith in Christ in reality. It must be your spirit. We rely on your spirit and we thank you. We pray, Lord, to be a church that follows the new covenant law, that follows our dear Savior with humility and with submission and deference and joy. We pray that we would be those who are esteemed as great in the kingdom because we teach others to obey your commands. Let that be our legacy in the coming kingdom, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.